former undercover cop, the author of the book Drug Wars, and a current member of the Law Enforcement Action Partnership. This is Neil Woods. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Dunk Tank. All right. I'm here with Neil Woods. Uh, thank you for joining me today. Well, thank you for inviting me. Uh, you have a fascinating story because you spent something like 15 years as an undercover cop in the drug squad. And I read somewhere that you apparently became a cop just from flipping a coin. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I, um, I went to university by mistake. Uh, whatever made me think that studying business studies would be fun, I have no idea. Um, but because when I got there, I realised what, what a completely foolish mistake I'd made. And like, like a couple of my friends, I, I, I dropped out of university. I was going to go travelling around Europe, maybe I'd go on a bit of adventure fruit picking and doing what work I could around Europe. But then I saw an advertisement from the police. Um, so I couldn't make my mind up. So yeah, I, I flipped a coin and um, it came up heads and that's taken me on a very long journey, which has um, taken us to, to this this conversation today, I suppose. I know. It, it's, I don't know if you've seen No Country for Old Men, but he does the, the coin flip in there. It's it, it, it's a very, uh, I, I, just the fact that you've gone on this saga and it's the, the outcome of a coin flip is very uh, profound in some ways to me. But I'm, I'm curious, you became a cop. At what point do you decide, um, two parts, at what point do you decide you want to go into the drug squad? Um, and how does that become undercover? I never intended to go in the drug squad at all. Um, but I, I, well, I didn't actually think it was be within my capacity to do so because when I, when I started the police, I was I was terrible at it. You know, I, I was I, I was not a very good uniform cop at all. Um, I, I almost lost my job on several occasions. You know, I was I was young and naive, and only when I went into the police did I realise how young and naive I was. Um, so no, I, I I struggled. I really struggled. But it's you know the sort of mental pressure was to give up, you know, that I was getting the clear signals. This wasn't something I was very good at, but I was stubborn and wanted to prove to myself I could at least survive the first two years. So I did survive the first two years. I stayed in a bit longer. I got a bit better at it. And then I got an attachment to the drug squad. Now, the, the drug squad was sort of, they were the, 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 they were the sort of people, the only people who got overtime. They were the people who, um, uh, swaggered around in posh cars and wore what they want they were all mysterious doing their surveillance and they kept themselves separate from anybody else and it's what every detective wants to do but in order to get on the drug squad you'd have to go through getting onto CID becoming a detective and then moving on from that so it was a specialism beyond criminal investigation so it was unusual for a, someone as, as lowly as me to to even get close to them, really. And the reason for that is that there was the biggest moral panic ever in the United Kingdom at that point, uh, the, sort of the moral panic about drug use. And that was because the UK tabloids had been talking about the impact of crack cocaine in the United States for, for years and years before we actually got any crack cocaine. And the tabloid newspapers did a very good job of whipping up everyone into a fearful frenzy. This in itself influenced politics, so that at the moment we did get some crack cocaine, 
there was enormous political pressure on the police to do something about it, you know, to tackle the, the growing drugs menace. And so the Home Office instructed all chief constables to make investigating drugs, in particular heroin and crack cocaine, their number one priority, their number one above everything, above domestic violence, above terrorism. Well, terrorism wasn't as, as big a thing um, then, but it was then it was meant to be the number one priority. So that meant the drug squad was put under pressure as well. And the idea was that they would spread the knowledge of what the drug squad did by having useless rookies like me uh, come and join them for a few weeks. And that's, that's all it was. I was just, just one of those people who got name out of a hat, put on a, onto a drug squad attachment for a few weeks. But, but one of them looked at me one day and said, Hey, do you fancy having to go up buying some crack cocaine? Which wasn't a question I was expecting. I can assure you. And um, I thought, well, yeah, I'm game for anything. So he gave me £20 and um, pointed me to this terrace door in Derby. And I went and knocked on the door and successfully bought some crack cocaine. And, you know, as I walked away from that dealer, he said to me, you take care now, don't get yourself arrested. Wow. Which I thought was nice, you know, it's considerate. But that's actually, it's actually something very important to note that at that point, that tactic of low-level, um, street-level undercover work didn't exist in the UK. You know, the high-end high undercover work did. You know, you're, you're, you're a bit closer to your James Bond level, you know, um, being introduced to major players through years of work, that kind of undercover work, that happened, but not the low-level stuff. Now, it, it had been happening in the United States since the 1970s, but it hadn't happened in the UK. So the first time I did it, they didn't see it coming, so why would it be difficult? Mm. And what's surprising about this is that you talk about in the first two years of your life as a cop, admittedly, you were not good at it. And then you go into this position where it seems much more risky to, to be pretending to be somebody else rather than having the uniform on. I mean, were, were you frightened at all going into this? Yeah, I was nervous for sure. Um, but whereas I didn't necessarily deal so well with um, confrontation of the style that uniformed cops have to, have to cope with every day, not, not initially anyway, um, I found undercover work more, more suiting my personality because, and, and what I should say is that that day, that first day of success, then, then defined really the next 13 or 14 years of my life because they quickly saw the potential in it and the fact that I could pull this off. So, you know, the, the, the tactic was born that day, really. Um, and so as, uh, to answer your previous question, I, I never expected or intended to go into the drug squad, but suddenly I became an integral part of not just the drug squad of my own constabulary, but all over the country because I was, I was loaned out to different police forces initially for a few weeks at a time and then no less than six or seven months at a time. So, you know, it really did change my, change my life really. Um, but yeah, I mean, it suited my personality because in undercover work, I had to learn and adapt quickly. And the way that I did that is to pay attention to the, the sort of social structures around me and also to empathize with the people that I was, spending time with and and I suppose that suited me more in terms of adaptive behavior than 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 it did within within the police so 
I suppose it's it suited my personality much more to to delve into undercover work. And it's interesting the the word empathy there to to note because it reminds me a little bit of what people talk about journalists that their job is to seduce and betray. And in many ways, what you were doing is you were bringing these people into your confidence and then, uh, in for lack of a better word, betraying them to the arm of the law. Um, did you? In, in the beginning, I, I, I should ask, were you uh, a true believer in the sense that you thought that this was helping these people and was on the side of uh, the good? Yeah, absolutely. As a young man, I had a very simplistic view of, of problematic drug taking, very s- simplistic, stigmatized, judgmental. If I saw someone who had a problem with heroin, I saw someone who was stupid enough to have tried it in the first place and who just didn't have the willpower to get themselves out of it. You know, I just looked down on them you know, in sim- simple terms, which is a very common common view. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a broad uh, societal view of, of people. And so I thought I was that this was a chance to catch bad people and it didn't really matter who I trampled on in order to do so. That's certainly the start. But as, as you say, and that's an, you know, it's an interesting comparison to that ethic or that aspect of, of some kind of journalism that you, that you seduce and betray, because certainly that's what I did. And what I refer to it now is weaponizing empathy, because that's essentially what I did. I got, I got to know people because in order to understand them and learn how to survive in that, in that environment, I had to understand people and I had to spend time listening to them and also if I wanted to manipulate them to get them to do what I wanted, which of course I did, then I, I quickly learned that the people I, the, who were easiest to manipulate are the most vulnerable people. So I sought out and picked on the most vulnerable people. And if that seems ruthless, well, that's because it is. Of course it is. Um, so I, and those vulnerable people, I would manipulate them by listening to them and I would hear about their childhood trauma. I would hear the individual stories which brought them to the position that they were in when I met them. And quite quickly, I learned that my very simplistic stigmatized view was way, way off the mark, way off the mark, because every single person who who was really struggling problematically with heroin and or crack cocaine, they all had a story and almost all of them, it was a one of childhood trauma. And this is, this is literally a decade and a half before I started reading the, the academic papers on this kind of thing, which of course nowadays I, you know, I study the academic arguments on a, on a daily basis. But before that, you know, I became aware that people, the, the, the people who were most struggling were all trying to struggle with childhood trauma, either physical abuse, sex, sexual or physical abuse, or neglect, and they all have their story. You know, they they all have their story of an abusive father. Uh, although many people would say, "Well, well, I deserved it. I deserved it." But when I stepped out of line, I, you know, I'd get battered senseless. You know, or uh, my mother's had to hide me from the social workers, or or I take heroin to forget the feeling of my uncle's fingernails as he sexually abused me as a little girl, or. The, the stories are endless. The horror, the, the stories of utter horror are endless. Um, and so I quickly learned the truth of it, that my judgmental approach was significantly misplaced. But 
you know, the, the trouble is that led to a growing awareness that my actions by manipulating these vulnerable people was making their life worse because at the end of the operation, they got roped into it. They also got arrested. So I was making their lives even worse, yeah. which, which over time became very taxing for me because I might have flipped a coin to go into the police, but I still, once I was there, wanted to do good. You know, I wanted to help people not cause harm. You know, in simple terms, you'll find that's the case with, 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 with almost every cop. Even where harm's caused, they don't. They normally, they're, they're normally well-meaning. Um, so this got this got taxing, and it came to a point after a few years where I had to really go through this in my head and consider the harm I was causing, the emotional damage. And I justified it to myself. I went through a process of ethically justifying it to myself that, okay, I was causing harm to these individuals, these vulnerable people, but the end justified the means because at the end of the six or seven month operation, I would be catching the bad guy. I would be catching significant bad guys who were, you know, kidnapping, maiming and killing people. Yeah. So it became a justification and I did wrestle with that and I did find it difficult. And over time, it contributed to, to, my, to my growing stress, you know, discomfort in what I was doing. But keeping that justification going to myself uh, was, what, was what kept me going. Many, many years later before I realised the folly of that, but I, I suppose we're not quite there in our conversation today. Yeah. yeah. It's when you say you have these six to seven month operations, one of the things that I'm thinking is, okay, how is it possible that if you have a six month operation and then a bunch of people get rolled up and thrown in prison, how do they not look at you the next day and go, well, that's, that's Neil the cop. Like, how do you continue for 15 years to, to play this charade? Well, but basically the kind of work I was doing was, was localised and street level. So I moved between inner cities. Now, it was risky because sometimes I would hear names which made it quite clear to me that the people I was targeting were connected at least loosely to previous people that I targeted. But for the most part, I was dealing with inner city gangs who controlled specifically a market in one place. So I could move as long, and obviously I was very careful not to use the same names and the same uh, legends, the same background stories as I was using in other places. But but I worked some places as far apart as, you know, as far north as Leeds, as far south as Brighton and lots of different places in between. And, you know, the UK has got 65 million people and a lot of the, you know, the, the, the drug markets in different cities are, are so big and separated that, you know, clearly... I was able to move between these two these places and keep it mm. safe. But but one thing I would emphasize is that very early into my career, I was disturbed to find the extent of corruption, which existed as a result of policing drug policy. Although I didn't quite see it in those terms then, to the point that by the end of the nineteen nineties, a whole system had been brought into place to try and protect me from corruption. Uh, you know, or because organised crime could potentially find out 
who I was, where I was, where I lived or whatever. And this system in itself is a, is a systematic admission of the extent of corruption and the extent of how the police service is fearful of and aware of the existence of that corruption. So what I would do, I, I would I ended up working for an organization was set up which was set up eventually specific to, to manage me and people like me. And they were called the East Midlands Special Operations Unit. And so they would provide me as an asset to different police forces who would want to carry out an undercover operation in their city. The systems which were required by the, the special operations unit of each constabulary were that specialist vetted staff would be set up to be my backup team. And there would be spe specific designated roles. There would be the tech officer, um, exhibits officer, statements officer, backup team, senior investigating officer, all, all of these roles that would be work around me. Um, and But the important thing is that they would be taken away from their normal roles and cocooned completely so that they had no contact whatsoever with the rest of their police force, like none at all. The only contact would be through a designated person, which would be the intel officer, and he would only feed into the police and take from the police what was vetted by the senior investigator officer. So there was a complete control over what information there was. So essentially it was a separate unit, completely protected from conversations with normal cops. That team would be briefed before I got there. They would be given a, what is called a lawful order. And if you're given a lawful order as a police officer, you sit up and take notice. Because this basically means if you break this lawful order, you're in trouble. You could lose your job if you break this lawful order. And that the order would be that they're not allowed to ask me my real name or where I'm from. So I had to use the same pseudonym as I was telling to the gangsters as I would to the police officers I was working with. They weren't allowed to know my real name. So I was kept completely separate and I'd use a different pseudonym each time. And they would be disciplined if they even asked me that name. No. Now that's obviously set up to protect me from corruption. And, you know, that should blow the mind of anyone listening, really, because the very existence of that mechanism is an admission of systematic corruption, because without systematic corruption, those methods would not be required, would they? And you mentioned at one point that you did have uh, like a departed style mole within um, the police force. I think it was a guy named like Charlie Fletcher or something like that. Did I get that right? Yeah, that's right. So, so this point proves both the need for measures against corruption because corruption is there and endemic. Um, and also the fact that nothing can really truly protect you from that corruption because the system didn't work. Basically it was in a, it, it was an operation in Nottinghamshire and it was four and a half months in, and the day, the day before this, I'd had a really difficult day at the office, so to speak, because I spent months trying to get close to this gangster, and I got an introduction to him, and he interrogated me with a with a knife pressed into my groin, into my testicles, which I can assure you is not very comfortable. In fact, it's 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 unsettling, I would even say. <laughs> um, uh, and so that had been a difficult day. It had been a long day. But the next morning, um, two of my backup team had gone off sick. Um, 
everyone had been working really long hours. And so two cops were brought in as replacement. They were introduced to me and I shook the hand of one of them. No problem. Shook the hand of the second one and just the hairs went up at the back of my neck. Every instinct was screaming that this guy was wrong, completely wrong. Mm. Now, later on, it's difficult to unpick an instinct or a series of instincts because 90% of our communication is nonverbal and we're not all the time conscious. It's not all that nonverbal. Those nonverbal cues are not always in our conscious mind. And if you bear in mind the day I'd had the day before and just how paranoid I was feeling, you know, you work day to day working undercover and your senses are really fine tuned. You pick up on all sorts of nuance. And this guy was wrong. So I went to the senior investigating officer and I said, look, boss, I cannot have this guy knowing what I'm doing. I don't trust him. I cannot relax today knowing he's got my back. So he was great. He said, fine, we'll exclude them both. We won't tell them why. We'll tell them to park up at the edge of the city. They'll not be in the briefing. They won't have a clue what this job's about. And uh, you'll be happy. Great. Didn't think another thing of it. Now, the, the, the cartel that I was trying to get close to, cartel called the Bestwood Cartel, run by a very infamous UK gangster um, called uh, Gunn. Um, I was trying to get close to them, but it seemed he got closer to me because that cop was an employee of Colin Gunn. Colin Gunn had re recruited him to join the police. So he was, he was employed to join the police. So this isn't a cop that's been corrupted after joining, like many are. He was, he, he was told to join the police. So by the time I'd met him, he'd been in the police for seven years. And as you say, his name was Charlie Fletcher. And now in, in, a, in a brilliant operation by Nottinghamshire Constabulary, Colin Gunn was eventually brought down. So as I say, 12 months after my, that point in my operation. And it was found that Charlie Fletcher was an employee of his, but I have to stress that it was luck which brought them there. And, you know, the judge sentenced Charlie Fletcher to seven years in prison, a year for every, for every year he'd been in the police, I believe. But bear this in mind, Charlie Fletcher was paid £2,000 a month on top of his police wages, plus bonuses for good information. And in debriefs after that operation, senior police in charge of that, and lots of senior police I've spoken to since, both in the UK and around the world, all admit to me that they know that this kind of corruption is endemic and impossible to defend against. You know, that should sink in with people. Take, just take the time to let that sink in, that senior police know full well that that kind of corruption exists and that they accept there's no defence against it. And the point that the senior cop said to me just after that, they said, well, look, Woodsy, of course we know this happens. With this much money involved, how can it not happen? Yeah. Yeah, in other words, because this all, all these drugs, which I assume makes up the bulk of the revenue for these criminal organisations, uh, are illegal, and they, you know, they become part of the criminal underworld, then they have this the resources to employ a Charlie Fletcher and put him on the, uh, you know, put him on the, the police role like that. To hear that in the UK, and I mean that's that's something that you would expect out of like a banana republic. But I guess that that happens everywhere. Then, um, did you 
you talk about picking up on all these little uh, like nonverbal cues and instincts. Uh, and you talked earlier about like weaponizing empathy. How did you uh, get into the role of an undercover cop? Uh, I've heard you say it's not like a stage play, like you're not really an actor. Um, what do you mean by that? Yeah, it's quite difficult to explain this one. And when, when we eventually did have some training, because I'd done the work for about five years before we had any training and I helped develop the training for that. But we got some level one undercover, some of the more sophisticated undercover cops to come and talk to us. And one of them said to me, look, you know, you, you're never an actor. Don't try and be an actor. You have to be a different version of yourself. And so I'll like, try and explain that to you. Basically, if you try and be an actor as an undercover officer, you're going you're gonna to get yourself killed because you're not an actor. And I don't have the skills of an actor. I don't. I can't play an entirely different role with the success, with the skills required to convince people over a long-term basis of that other role. You know, actors are well-trained. They know how to play a role in a play on the stage, which they'll do perfectly, or they, they can play a part in a film. But working undercover, you might be in people's company for 12 hours at a time. You might have to live on the plot in, in the area and be amongst people for such long periods of time. And, the strain of trying to be a different person without those skills is, is, is impossible to maintain. So you have to be a different version of yourself. Now that sounds, it's, it's a difficult concept, concept to explain, but it's, it's, you have to shed the idea of acting. So you still remain who you are, but you just have to be restrictive about what aspects of yourself you show and what aspects of yourself you might amplify. So, you, you, you never be a, you're never a different person. Does that make sense? Yes. In other words, you're not trying to invent, let's say a, a backstory out of whole cloth. Like if you could say, you know, Hey, I played uh, soccer when I was a kid and that's actually true about you. You would rather keep that than invent something like, Oh, I played tennis. Cause it's just more to remember. Remember. Right. Is that kind of. Weird? Yeah. But it's more about the core of the core of it. It's more about personality. So it's more about, how you would react and behavior in a, different, in a different way. It's not necessarily what you say about your backstory, because I certainly invented all sorts of backstory and legends and, um, and things. But yeah, but when it, it comes down to, it's almost like your, your core values, how you respond to things and how, how, what facets of self you can make use of and what facets of self you can't. So it's just shaping and adapting who you are to fit different circumstances, if that makes sense. Yeah, it, it's, I remember reading something about some author made this point how, you know, we're not trained actors, but there are people like a guy who cheats on his wife and goes home and pretends everything's all right and acts like he would normally. You're not an actor on a stage, you're still you but you're, you're somehow pulling off all these movements and convincing people that what you're saying and doing is, is an accurate representation of yourself. Is that kind of the area? Yeah, that, yeah, that's a good example. It is a good example. It's the same kind of explanation, but it is just being more willful and directed with a particular aim. So you're using those natural uh, abilities to deceive and manage the situation people around you, but with a, with a particular focused goal rather than uh, reacting to one's lusts and vices.
Sure. And I want to get into the the point at which like you turned away from believing in this kind of work, but I I, I want to ask because at some on on some level th this story of being an undercover cop, uh, it's fascinating, and I think it has an almost like romantic appeal to some people. The idea of you know you're living a double life and uh, you're you're uh, putting yourself in danger and all these you know, kinds of exciting things. Um, did you find any aspects of your, your personality being corroded over time? In other words, if you're lying, uh, in effect, to people all day, w w was it harder to go home and maintain uh, honest relationships? I'm not sure. I mean, I, I don't think so. I mean, there was some there was some aspects of my personality as a younger as a young man, which were affected, certainly in the first few years. For example, I, I don't think I ever came across as, as arrogant, but I got a massive ego boost from being good at what I was doing. Um, and I quickly developed a reputation within the covert policing world as someone who could First, fearlessly almost get himself killed and come up smiling, you know, and and I sort of bought into my own legend a little bit, which which which, in the long term, probably contributed to the damage it caused me uh, to my to my mental health because, you know, I felt increasingly um, invulnerable, and sort of believing my own legend is is a dangerous dangerous thing to do, really. Um, because I didn't realise that every near-death experience I had, and I did have quite a few, was con was damaging me, my long-term mental health. And now I'm diagnosed with chronic PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. So, so you know, so that, that harm was caused. Um, so I've, I've been, you know, I went through a period of time where perhaps I wasn't as humble as I strive to be nowadays. Um, in terms of the deception, now I didn't really have a problem with the deception. I, I managed to compartmentalize the part of my life where I was deceiving people from my family life, you know, and I still managed to go home and take my kids swimming on a Sunday Sunday morning quite often because I used to arrange my working to seat to seat me wherever possible. Um, so it wasn't all difficulties and horrors, you know. I did have some enjoyable family life as as well, but in terms of the lying, you know. People hear this and think I'm just some, some kind of cold sociopath, but certainly in the first few years, I really enjoyed the intellectual exercise of successfully lying to people. I did. I, I can't help that. I enjoyed the the challenge of it, and yeah, the the intellectual challenge of it. The and I loved getting better at it. I loved learning and becoming aware of the those subtle tells where people were completely believing in you or where there was an element of distrust, you know, and, and you have to pick up on those elements of distrust to try and put, quench that fire quickly, you know, and win them over. So it was a constant, um, it's a constant study. It's a constant development of self. And that appealed to me a lot at the time. So, yeah, I kept it separately. You know, it was like my, my work and my self-development and then I would go home to my family and I, I, I don't think I really struggled to separate those things. Not, not like journalists often want me to say that this, you know, my growing other personality impacted on my home life and destroyed it. And 
I mean, don't get me wrong, my, my first marriage did fail, but um, I, I don't put that down to my undercover work. I see. Um, I, I, I got to ask, because you did mention you had a few near-death experiences. What was the closest you came to dying or severe physical harm? Uh, God, take your pick. Um, you know, I've had, I've had a door answered, a samurai sword put to my throat and various things. But I suppose... I suppose the most dramatic one was um, I was doing an operation in Leicester and uh, very early on in the operation, I bought some heroin off this gangster who happened, just happened to be a real big hitter. He was a real meaty target, someone who we really wanted to catch. But he took a step back and I didn't see him for months. And so the operation carried on and we got masses of evidence. The, the operation was coming to a conclusion, but we hadn't got any corroborative evidence against this particular person because he'd gone off the scene before it came to a point in the operation where I felt comfortable wearing any um, technical equipment, a camera. So this guy I kept phoning this guy to get him out, to get him on film. And, and he wasn't, he wasn't hands-on dealing. He was sending other people out. So I knew he liked his clothes. So I could come up with this plan of getting hold of some counterfeit clothing and trying to sell it to him. So through a custom, through a, through the backup team, got went through a customs contact and got hold of some counterfeit uh, Stone Island jackets. And I phoned the guy up and he took the bait and he decided, he agreed to meet me in this car park. And I got these jackets in plastic. And um, he brought two of his mates with him who I'd not met before. So although this guy trusted me, his two gangster mates didn't necessarily trust me. Anyway, the first thing he says to me, like, oh, yeah, the, yeah, these are interesting jackets, but do you just want to sell me these or do you want to buy something? So I'm thinking, well, I've only ever bought heroin off you. If I buy a crack as well, you'll get an extra 12 months in prison. So I says, well, if you carry him white, I'll have, a, I'll have a 20 stone from you. So he brings out this massive block of crack cocaine. I mean, huge, like bigger than a VHS like box, video box. You're too young to remember VHS video boxes. I, I do remember VHS. But... Yeah, you, you, just about, you just about remember it, right? So anyway, it's a massive block, and he's sat in the front of his car, cutting it, a little slither off it. While he's doing that, his mate is looking at me and then suddenly pushes me up against this metal fence, his metal railing at the back of the car park. And he starts feeling my clothes, and in no time at all, he's found the camera. Now, we're not talking James Bond tech here. No. This was like... Um, a denim jacket with metal studs and in the hole of one of the metal studs is the camera winking out at you if you find it and he found it and he said fucking hell man he is as well he is he's fucking 5-0 man he's fucking 5-0 he's heat so I'm thinking right and, it, and this is one slight advantage I had working undercover is that when I was in a situation where I really needed when I was in trouble I was in danger I would get a surge of adrenaline and some people, myself included, me, that what happens is you get a sense of time slowing down. You get the feeling you've got all the time in the world to think. It's almost serenity for a moment. Yeah. And so in that moment, I thought, okay, I've got a very long car park to get out here. There's no one else around. I'm completely secluded. And if I start running, they're going to catch me. And I'm dead. Because you, the fastest way for a to get a pack of wolves running after you is to run away. So I thought, I've got to prevent him convincing my mate that I am who I am. 
So I thought, I've got to give myself breathing space. So I thought, so I thought, so what I did is I went into a, a torrent of abuse to him. And I thought, I can't give him, let him get a word in edgeways. Because if I give him the space to speak, it gives him the chance to convince him of what he's found. So I just launched at him and said, you, you're fucking picking up my clothes. What the fuck are you doing? Picking what the fuck? What are you doing picking up my fucking clothes? It's not even my fucking jacket. This belongs to Jackie. I picked it up off the back of the fucking chair this morning. It doesn't even belong to me. So I don't know what the fuck you're fucking on about. And I don't know what you're doing. Fucking my... And I'm do- as I'm doing this, I'm taking the jacket from his mate, from another, from the third one, I'm slowly folding it, putting it into this plastic and then picking up the other ones from the floor and, I start walking really, really slowly. And I just kept up this torrent of abuse, repeating it. And he's just like, he's just completely stunned. He wasn't expecting this. He was like, but, but, but. So I just carried on walking and giving this abuse and shouting like a madman as I'm walking across this car park. And then I'm starting to think, oh, I might just make it. I might just live this, this day. Because I knew the calibre of people these were anyway i suddenly hear footsteps running behind me and i and i thought oh god i've got halfway i'm thinking maybe if i turn around and get one punch into one of them and then sprint to the exit i might just get but at least within sight of some other people anyway it's the guy i know who's cut up the crack and he comes up to me he says hey mate don't you want your ting and i'm thinking to myself you want to sell me crack now and he says, don't mind my mate, he's a dickhead. And I says, yeah, he is a dickhead. And he's picking at my fucking clothes. I don't know what he's fucking doing. And this time I'm getting the 20 quid out of my pocket and hand it over and he gives me the crack, which he's wrapped in a little bit of cling film. And I shove it in my little key pocket in my jeans. And all the time I'm doing this, his mate stood by the car, literally screaming at him, saying, for fuck's sake, man, he's 5-0. Yeah, and, and like many times I'm thinking 5-0, he's not old enough to have watched a white 5-0. But, you know, it's still the street slang for police. And, and he's screaming at him. Anyway, he starts going back to the car and I keep walking. But then suddenly I hear a screech. The tyres take off as he's revving the engine and flying across the car park towards me. Clearly he's convinced him that of what he's found. And the car comes after me. So then I just start running. When I get to the exit the car park and turn left and start running along the, the pavement. The car turns a corner, came up the pavement, driving after me along the pavement. So I sprinted. Now, where this is, is like, it's the inner ring road of, of Leicester. So it's a dual carriageway leading to a roundabout where to the left of the roundabout, I could quite quickly get to a pedestrian area. The car park had been secluded, but actually I wasn't that far away from other people. Anyway, they joined... They, they drive up, up the pavement after me and I sprint and there's a barrier protecting the pavement from the roundabout. And I just managed to get to that barrier where the car won't fit. So the car screeches to a halt and glancing behind, I reckon they must have been no more than two metres away from me. And they were quite clearly trying to run me down. Yeah. So then they bumped off the pavement onto the road, went round the roundabout once. And by the time they'd come round the roundabout to have another look at me, I was already quite a way towards the pedestrian area of the city centre. So anyway, I went, I, I went back to the safe location to debrief and um, told them the description of the others, the, the registration 
after the car happened. Intel guy went away to do some um, to do some research, and uh, when he came back, he says, "Wow, he was laughing." I don't know why they didn't just shoot you because there's loads of intel. There's a gun in that car, so yeah, well, that's just cop sense of humour. So, but yeah, that's probably the closest or one of the closest I came to to getting killed. So that that is that's a, a tale of people who are uh, a lot more menacing than some of the more vulnerable people you, you were talking about earlier. Um, but but as we get into why you've you've sort of uh, changed you've gone a 180 philosophically when it comes to the drug war um i'm reminded of a story that you told of a guy i think his name was cammy um do, do you know who i'm talking about yeah 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 cammy um cammy was from the same operation as um as charlie fletcher um the one in nottinghamshire where we were, i was trying to get close to colin Gunn's cartel and Cammy was really Im- Im- useful to me because he was a peripheral member of that cartel really very peripheral because he was a user dealer whose supply came from those people uh, so he was really useful to me and I really cultivated him I spent a lot of time with him I listened to him about his childhood and I manipulated him a great deal um, you know I spent time shoplifting with him and you know doing all sorts and and I, I, I liked him, you know, there's a lot of these people I really enjoyed the company of because he was funny and and good company, but he just had very unfortunate things happen to him. And for him, again, it was a traumatic childhood that that led him to self-medicate with, with heroin. But of course, at the end of the operation, when I you know, presented the evidence against the, the nasty gangsters, but also all of these not so nasty, vulnerable people, he, he was arrested and when when he was arrested and he was in the police cells, he ended up being on minute-to-minute watch, suicide watch. And the reason for that was because for someone as vulnerable him and had had such a difficult life, my betrayal of him was the was the final straw, the last straw to to put him in that in that depth of emotions or like where you know he became suicidal. So and that's the reality of the harm that I was causing to, to people that, and, and how far that could go. And, you know, it should be broadened, not just to, to see it through the eyes of that vulnerable person in particular, but in the broader sense, you know, the ruthlessness that meant that I could put someone in that situation is a, is a microcosm of the broader drug war. Because the whole premise of this war on drugs is that we can cause harm to individuals to somehow prevent a broader societal harm you know that we can punish people send people to prison and traumatize them in order to do some good for society and and it's always justified in those terms that 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 we that we prevent more harm than it causes and and the truth is that it that it doesn't certainly in in the personal cost to individuals like that but also to broader society i mean there are other examples i can give you if 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 you like of, of the evidence of that it's it's not just that it's causing harm to individuals. It's because bear in mind that I still carried on doing that work despite knowing the cause, the harm that I caused to him. I did because right. I still believe I still believed that even that harm was justified, which makes me very ruthless indeed at the time. 
But eventually, you know, I'd had years and years of doubts, which I'd pushed down, you know, I'd suppressed. Eventually I had to face up to all those doubts when some, when other things happened to me. And one of those is where I uh, investigated the, a, a very notorious gang called the Burger Bar Boys in, uh, in the town of Northampton. A very, a very notorious organised crime group from Birmingham who had taken over the supply in that neighbouring town. And so I went to that operation as normal, manipulating vulnerable people to get introductions. And um, it was quite a terrifying experience when I eventually, when I finally, finally got a direct introduction to the, to the gang, the Bergamar boys, because I was shown into this snooker club, into this gent's toilet, where this hooded figure came in and he went into the toilet cubicle and stood on the toilet, looked over the top and said, what's this? And then the door burst open and four more hooded figures came in and they were circling me and headbutting me on the side of the head and punching me on the ribs, in the ribs. And all the while I'm being interrogated by this, this one in the cubicle and asking my friend who'd introduced me the same questions, trying to trip me up. And this went on so long, I really thought I was, going, was not going to get out of there in one piece because I knew just how violent these people were. You know, the person that was asking me questions I knew he was implicated in seven different murders. This gang was using casual sexual violence as part of their reputation building. You know, these were brutal, brutal people. Um, but eventually he suddenly said, all right, then what do you want? And in the moment he said that, the four hooded figures walked out. It was so choreographed. Anyway, then I, I, I paid him my money and I, I bought some heroin and crack and got his phone number and then I was then I was in and I spent the next few months gathering evidence of conspiracy against all of that particular gang. And I almost died, I think, on other occasions, uh, at least one other occasion on, on, um, on that operation. But by after seven months, I'd gathered evidence against 96 people, the six Burgoar boys and 90 other people. And I knew I'd got no other, no one else to catch because there were no new phone numbers to get. There was no new names I, had, I hadn't already met. I caught everybody. And so I was thinking, wow, this operation is going to be the biggest yet because I've caught everyone that's mentioned. So there was police brought in from five different counties, in a huge operation, hundreds of cops involved. And um, yeah, so then the intelligence officer who was tasked with keeping his ear to the ground after the, after the dust settled, spoke to me afterwards. He says, yep, we managed to interrupt the heroin and crack cocaine supply in Northampton for a full two hours. Seven months of work, all of that violence, all of those, that, those near-death experiences, 96 people arrested, huge resources, all for the sake of interrupting the drug supply for two hours. That's all. So... That justification to myself, and as we justify as a, as a society this policy that we have, the end does, doesn't justify the means at all because there is no benefit at all to the policing of the drug markets. Now, don't get me wrong. You know, those are nasty people and they're better off in prison than out. Those six, the six of them, not the, not the others, not the other 90 people. They were vulnerable people. The six people who are the main gangsters, yeah, they were vicious. They wouldn't have been vicious without the drug market. Those young men have become violent in order to survive, 
in the drug market in a Darwinian sense, because policing drugs makes that necessary. Because the most successful gangs are the most violent ones, or rather they're the people who are most willing to be violent. We've created that situation. Those young men at the age of 12 weren't thinking they were going to grow up and learn how to be violent gangsters. No way. They learned to be violent because that's what the opportunity that was given to them requires them to do. So it's worse than futile. You know, the first time I bought crackers, I told you at the start of our conversation today, that wasn't difficult because they didn't see it coming. The whole marketplace is adapted to the presence of people like me and become more violent. Now, of course, we have children exploited to deal drugs. That would not have happened without me having been in that marketplace. It wouldn't have happened if police don't use police informants that find out information on the adults. Police, because children are the perfect buffer zone between the police and the gangsters. So the use of children is a response to police success. We are shaping this market. Police are really, really good at catching drug dealers. We are. If you give police twice the resources, they'll catch twice as many, but that's part of the problem. Because police never reduce the size of the market, but they are changing the shape of it. And that changing shape is more vicious with every passing year. Now we mentioned corruption earlier. There's another side effect of policing drugs. It, makes, it causes the corruption. Because if you catch a dealer that controls the heroin supply in one half of a city, the dealer who's most likely or most able to take up that opportunity created by that policing is the dealer that controls the other half of the city. So over time, policing drugs creates monopolies. If you create monopolies, then the people with the sh with, who, who control that market have an increasing share of the market, which means increasing wealth, which means they have more disposable income to invest in corruption. This is the mechanism of corruption in, in, in practice. It's policing that caused it. It's the attempt to police the drug markets, which makes corruption more likely. And this is at every level. This is at street level, international level. It's the reason why West Africa is now dominated by international cartels. The countries of Guinea, Bissau, Senegal, Guinea, they're now run by transnational organized crime. And that's because transnational, international organized crime has become more and more powerful by the police helpfully thinning out the competition and leaving uber-powerful organisations which threaten the very fabric of democracy. And one of the one of the stories that I've heard you talk about when we you know, describe how the increase in policing tends to make these uh, cartels much more violent is, I think it was in Brighton, where there were cases, I don't know if this was proved or not, but there were cases where, you know, skyrocketing overdoses and people were saying that maybe these were deliberate, like they were trying to, uh, you know, keep people in line. Is that uh, also a consequence of the kinds of undercover work you were doing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, in, in Brighton, what the local, what the organised crime groups who were supplying that area were doing was using homeless people as proxy dealers, much in the same way that nowadays they've moved on to children as being proxy dealers. And the reason they're doing that is because it was the perfect defence against me and my presence in that community, because it kept them away from the actual gangsters controlling it. So, and they would say to the homeless people, if you bring even the, if you bring a strange face anywhere near me, we're going to kill you. And this was what this what the community was talking about. They were all saying, 
you know, some of us are getting casually murdered and we can tell you the names of people who did. And they got murdered, they got given an overdose. And of course, I can't prove that there were casual murders going on because you would need a full police investigation in order to do that. But what I can say is that whole community was convinced that those casual murders were going on. And it, and it certainly makes sense because that community was being controlled with fear. And again, that's only possible because the drug markets are unregulated because we've made this valuable community, valuable commodity illegal. And for you on a personal level, I mean, psychologically, after 15 years of investing your life's work in, into something that you now no longer believe in, that must have been, it's almost like someone who loses their faith, like at that level of a, a dilemma. I mean, was that gut-wrenching for you to look back and go, wow, I don't believe in anything that I've done in the past 15 years? Yeah, it's difficult. Well, it was, it was just... It was just a little over 13 years, but I, and it wasn't permanently. It wasn't, I wasn't working undercover permanently during that time. But yeah, I, I worked very hard on drugs policing for a very, very long time indeed. And um, yeah, it is hard to, to look back and think, because we like to think that what we've done is valuable, don't we? We like to think that we're, we're doing the right thing and contributing to, to society. And it is hard to, to look back and think, all I've done is cause harm. And I have. You know, I've caused a huge amount of time, a huge amount of harm to individuals and to society. But but we have a duty to the truth. You know, we, especially within law enforcement, we have a duty to the truth. And that's what I say to my colleagues now that, you know, you it's not your job to defend policy when you know better. We have to face up to the truth because, you know, I'm, I'm the way I've, I've, I've worked my, my head around it is that I'm still fighting organised crime now. I'm just doing it with everything. Um, and, and I'm trying to fight organised crime by letting people know the truth and uh, and following the evidence. And that's, you know, following the evidence is not too much to ask in any regard. It's not too much to ask of the police. It's not to ask too much to ask of politicians because our current drug policy is not based on evidence. It's based on ideology and a very shaky uh, racist ideology is, is the foundation of of our, of our current drug policy so but yeah it was difficult and I, I went through a very hard hard period of time where I had the worst of my symptoms of, of PTSD uh, part of that is moral injury where I had to face up to um, the harm that you know the guilt of the harm that I've caused to other other people and but I'm you know I'm not the only one though you know I'm I'm part of a growing international movement of police and other law enforcement time I'm part of the Law Enforcement Action Partnership, which are growing rapidly in the United States, but growing across Europe and, and around the world. And we're, we're probably the most important group that's key to change our drug policy because we, we can see the failure in action. We have the information at our disposal to, to explain to the public just how much of a catastrophic, catastrophic failure our current drug policy is. Yeah, and, and the Law Enforcement Action Partnership, or, or LEAP, um, for short, what is it that you uh, you all w would advocate now to be our drug policy as opposed to prohibition? Well, all drug policy reforms that are evidence based are a good idea. First, I have to emphasize that you know whether it's overdose preven overdose prevention centres, also um, called drug consumption rooms (DCRs), or heroin assisted treatment, or 
or decriminalization of drug possession, all of these things like, like Portugal did, all of these things are very important. But we come at this from a policing perspective. And what we want to see is to take the power away from organized crime. We want to take their power away from them. We want to take control of these drug markets. And only by doing that can we fight the corruption, the violence, and the dominance and corrupting influence of organized crime. So we want to regulate all of the drug markets. Now, for heroin, that means we medicalize it, prescribe to those problematic people who need it. We go back to the British system, the way we used to do it up until the end of the 1960s. For the other commodities, we regulate those according to their relative risks. So for cannabis, we look to Canada and some part, some, some of the states in America for, for, the, for good policy ways of doing it. I think we can do better than Canada, um, certainly in terms of social equity, making sure that the communities which have been most marginalised by a current policy are not further marginalised by um, legal regulation. Um, but we do we look at it from a public health perspective. You know, our children have easier access to cannabis and cocaine now than, than they do um, alcohol and tobacco. That's because regulation works. Regulation protects our young better. You know, dealers don't ask for ID. If, 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 if children go to a shop and they want to buy alcohol or cigarettes, they've got to show photographic ID because we have regulatory control. It'll never be perfect, but it is significantly better than being controlled by gangsters. Um, so this is about taking control and this is what we want to see and we want to follow evidence in order to do that. Um, well, we're at an hour here, so I do want to wrap up, but one of the points, and this goes back to something we discussed earlier uh, in this conversation, is the sort of looking down on drug users. And you, you mentioned something in there like DCRs, the drug consumption rooms, which I, I assume refers to places where people can you know, legally and safely do drugs. Um, but that's something that seems like a big barrier to getting the, the population on board with this is the look, the, the idea that, oh, we're, we're going to have taxpayer money go to people shooting up like how dare you you know like what do you say to those kinds of people based on your experience uh meeting some of these uh drug users well first of all we, sh we should care for every member of our society and there is good evidence that drug consumption rooms or overdose prevention sites keep people alive and it, they keep people alive until pay, people are ready to deal with the problems that have caused their drug addiction. So we should we should be caring for people. But even if you don't care for those people, overdose prevention sites, drug consumption rooms, they are actually cost product, cost effective because people who have to inject drugs in dirty alleys uh, and in the street, they suffer from all sorts of health conditions which cost the NHS an absolute fortune. So there is cost-benefits analysis from the United States, from Canada, and from Australia, which show that, and Denmark actually, which show that um, the drug consumption room is cost-effective because it prevents much more expensive health interventions, much more expensive. Um, so if you only wanted to look at it from cost, they pay for themselves anyway. But we should, as a society, take pride in how we care for the most vulnerable in our society. We should be judged on it. We should. We should judge ourselves on how, how we take care of the most vulnerable. And in the UK at the moment, we are sadly lacking. In, in Denmark, they, I've, I've seen the drug consumption rooms there. Uh, the biggest one is just across the road from the police station. 
and the police are completely fully in support of them because as one police officer says to me said to me he he's really happy not to have to go and deal with the dead bodies in the street because he finds it traumatic he does not want these people to die he wants people to get better and he sees this as helping them to get better and what more could we want and what more could a police officer want Amen. Uh, Neil, before I let you go, is there anywhere that people can reach you? you you've written a couple books, TED Talks, etc. cetera. Uh, how, how can people, if they want to uh, hear more about the kind of work you're doing now, um, find you? Well, there's a few things. There's my own website, which is neilwoods.net. But more importantly than that, there's the Leap UK website, which is www.ukleap.org. Or I'm on the board for LEAP in the USA, but you just, just search on Law Enforcement Action Partnership USA. Um, on Twitter, uh, LEAP UK is at UK LEAP. Um, uh, same on Instagram. Um, you'll find us on, on Facebook, obviously. Uh, I suppose that's about it, really. Oh, I, I would also ask you to please look up uh, very close allies of ours, um, which is anyone's child, um, either the website or on Twitter, they are at anyone's child. Absolutely. Uh, Neil, thanks again. And, and I really enjoyed this conversation. I thought it was, uh, this, this is one of my favorite uh, podcasts that I've done. So I appreciate it and uh, have a great rest of your day. Good, good chatting with you and thanks for inviting me. Bye-bye then. Bye-bye. Thank you to Neil Woods and thanks for listening to Dunk Tank. I'm Duncan Gammy. See you next time.